You're listening to Transform Your Profits, the podcast for accountants who want to build a more profitable, successful, and impactful accounting firm. Your host is Reza Huda, a practice owner, mentor, and coach to accounting firm owners. Hello there, and welcome to today's podcast. I have a really exciting guest for you. He is a legend. He legend in the accounting profession, Ron Baker. Ron, it does needs no introduction, but I'll provide an introduction in any case uh, during the when the podcast starts. But if you don't know Ron and you're an accountant, then you haven't lived. I'm kidding. <laughs> Ron is not someone I've learned directly from, but Ron is someone who is a stalwart in the accounting profession when it comes to pricing, value pricing, getting rid of the billable hour. The move from time-based billing to value pricing was something that can be traced back to Ron in the late 80s, early 90s. He was a huge advocate of this. He was going around the circuit. He's written several books, which I will provide in the intro before I start the conversation with Ron. But I'm very excited that Ron has agreed to come on today to talk about how timesheets are really the wrong measuring tool and what to use in its place. Ron is very passionate about the subject, as you will hear. Uh, this is such a, a value-packed podcast. So do, do listen carefully, and I would love to hear your takeaways. Let me know, message me on LinkedIn or by email, or you can find me, find me on, uh, uh, on all the social platforms. I would love to hear what your takeaways were. It was a fantastic session. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's get stuck in, and I'll see you on the other side. Ron is a, is a CPA. He's been, um, uh, I think, qualified a very long time ago. I don't know when. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think we need to know. But Ron is a very, um, you know, he's an established author. He's published seven books from Professional Guide to Value Pricing, Firm of the Future, Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, Mind Over Matter, and the list goes on. I think nowadays, Ron, your uh, day job is a, is a weekly podcast, The Soul of Enterprise, which is a fantastic podcast, which um, I have subscribed to, and uh, I'm an avid listener of. So if you haven't already uh, subscribed to Soul of Enterprise, definitely worth doing so. Uh, apart from that, Ron has uh, been um, been quite active in the profession from uh, the, the the late 80s, talking about uh, time-based billing and how crazy it is and getting rid of the timesheet. Uh, I haven't learned directly from you, Ron, but I have. Uh, I came across your teachings from one of my mentors, Mark Wickersham, who I learned value mm-hmm. pricing from. So clearly, uh, Mark is a, is a big fan of yours. You, uh, he sees you as one of his heroes and one of his mentors. So your teachings have kind of uh, drip fed down to to the likes of us um, who weren't around when you were first doing those boot camps um, in the in the early, late uh, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Have I, have I given your uh, introduction justice, Ron? I probably have. Uh, oh, oh, yes. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, my bio bores me, so that's fine. <laughs> More than enough. Fantastic. All right, let's, let's get stuck right in. So I'm going to let Ron take over now, but we'll address each of the objections in turn. So uh, I think for, for the large part, most of the accounting profession, certainly in the UK, have moved on from time-based billing. So we know that... Billing by the hour is a crazy thing to do because we don't sell time. But there are still many firms, many parts of the profession who are holding onto the timesheets because some of the reasons they give is that how can they measure profitability otherwise? So let's kick off with that one, the the, the myth or uh, the, the argument that we need timesheets to let us know whether we are making profit or not. Away you go, Ron, over to you. Yeah, um, but let me just say, I, I realize that there's a big difference between moving off of time-based billing, but still keeping timesheets. And I'll say this emphatically, and this is controversial. I'm going to say it anyway. If you say you're value pricing and you're still doing timesheets, I promise you, you are not value pricing. And if you're still trying to measure profit by job, by customer, or by hour, you are not a value pricer because that's not how value pricers look at the world. 
value pricers look at the portfolio. My job as a pricer is to maximize profit across the entire firm, not per job, not per hour, and not per customer. It's an interdependent system. I can't break it out. Reza, imagine trying to run a P&L every hour on your firm. Every hour you update, you close the books, you make all the adjusting. It's insane. It's like trying to diet, weighing yourself every five minutes. It's not going to be helpful. And so the the I think, and this is the cost accounting mindset, and this took me a long time because, I, as you said, I'm a recovering CPA, but I started my life in a big eight accounting firm, and I also took an enormous amount of cost accounting courses, and I also worked as a cost accounting um, person did a lot of projects based on cost accounting. Thought it had the answers to everything. Cost accounting can help you with pricing. It can help you with profitability. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth, as I've learned. And this is kind of a deep topic, but the problem with looking at profit per job, per customer, per hour is this. Customers don't have costs. Firms do. And trying to assign those costs to one customer an hour at a time is completely arbitrary. And it is totally dependent upon which cost accounting method you select. So if I select full absorption costing or standard costing or marginal costing or activity-based costing or lean costing, I'm going to get six different answers for what an hour of time costs. <laughs> How can that be, you know, the, as the Siegel's there's a law called Siegel's law that says a man with one watch is certain of the time a man with two never is. <laughs> and that's what's going on. Cost accounting is not accurate. And we think it is because, you know, we can carry it out to two decimal places. But what matters is profit across the entire portfolio. And as a pricer, the one thing that I'm most interested in as a pricer is, did I leave money on the table? In other words, could we have charged a higher price and would the customer have been just as happy to pay for it? Cost accounting can't answer that question. Financial statements can't answer that question. Gap can't answer that question. The only thing that can answer that question is to get better and better at pricing, not better and better at cost accounting. Firms pay for basically three things, rent, technology, and human capital. And irrespective of how those resources are utilized, your costs are the same. So to divide up those costs and try and figure out how much of our paper towels should be allocated to this customer, how much of our rent should be allocated to this, it's nonsensical. It's a fool's errand to, to try and figure that stuff out. What matters is getting the right customers on board and pricing them right, because pricing is the number one driver. So it, it, it's more complicated. I have a lot more I could say about that, but I'll stop there because this is really a rabbit hole we could go down. You, I think you picked the most complicated <laughs> of the four objections because of the way that we accountants were taught cost accounting. The cost accounting mindset is very, I think, destructive. And um, it, it's a big problem. And I've written extensively about this. I've given thought experiments to try and help firms visualize how cost accounting, for, for one thing, cost accounting is completely dependent upon volume. So if I add another customer and start allocating cost per hour to that one customer, well, that means I've been over allocating to all the other customers for the for that preceding time period. Mm. Think about that. It, 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 in other words, the costs don't have anything to do with cash. If, if, an, if a CPA in a firm spends 20 hours on something rather than 10, who does the firm pay for those extra 10 hours? It's already paying the, the employee, irrespective of what they're doing, whether they're playing Candy Crush on their phone or whether they're working at a real high level. The, the cost, I, I don't even use the term fixed anymore because that's a cost accounting. I use the term non-cash and cash costs. Non-cash costs are allocated by cost accountants, but what we should be modeling is cash because that's what matters and profit matters and profit is taken care of through pricing. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. You're, you're bang on there. And I talk a lot about, um, you know, aligning our objectives with our clients' objectives. It's bizarre how in we're, in a business environment, we are the ones who are taking, oh, we, we don't want to take any of the risk. By, by time-based billing, 
it's the customer that's taking the full financial risk. Whether we are slow, we take longer to do something, the customer is being penalized, which just doesn't make sense whatsoever. And when your objectives as a company, as a firm, are around maximizing hours and not against client outcome, your your employees' minds, just by having timesheets, are on the wrong thing. Your employees are obsessed with just booking time as opposed to finding out whether anything that was done during that time was actually effective or not. And I think, you know, it, it seems if the, you know, the industrial age, we had the nine to five and that's has just continued. We're hundred years on, we're in the industrial age or in digital age, but we're still using the working practices of the industrial age where you have to physically be in a factory from nine to five for widgets to get produced. But who says work happens between the hours of nine to five these days? Um, and certainly something we've adopted is the results only work environment. I know you've done a podcast with the, 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 the pioneers of this, Jodie Thompson um, and her colleague, Callie Resler, um, on the results only work environment, which, which is all about, you know, it doesn't matter when, where uh, or how the work is done, as long as it gets done. And it shouldn't matter. Your people should be able to work when, where and how they want, as long as the work gets done, which is the only thing that should matter. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, just on that, the uh, the timesheet came out of, like you say, the Industrial Revolution, but in particular, one guy, uh, a guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was the father of scientific management. And anytime you have to qualify, anytime science is qualified, it's not science. Scientific management was a massive fraud. But this is the guy that did time and motion studies inside steel companies and tried to figure out the best way to move iron and, you know, shovel things into the blast furnaces. And that's where the timesheet grew up that because he started measuring inputs, the time, the labor, the activities, the efforts. And what matters is the results and the outcomes. And like you said, and I couldn't agree more, if you're doing a timesheet, what do you think you're selling? Your, your mind is mired in the mentality that you sell time and no customer buys time. It's the wrong metric uh, to, to measure the effort that, that a knowledge worker puts into something is the equivalent of taking a ruler and plunging it into the oven to determine its temperature. It's the wrong measuring stick. What you need to measure is the outcome. What you need to measure is the accountability. We need to move from realization and utilization to accountability, you know, holding people accountable for doing the work that they promised by the deadline that they promised to the customer. And you also said this at the start. And I just wanted to reiterate, I got into this whole value pricing thing in 1989 when there was no books on it, nobody on the circuit talking about it, nothing. And the only reason I wanted to do value pricing in my firm wasn't because of the marketing issue and the economic issues that I talk about today, but because it was a better customer experience. I moved into this because I was studying companies like Disney and Lexus, and I was looking at world-class back then service organizations, they were called or total quality service. And I wanted to emulate that. And I knew that the billable hour was a lousy, rotten client or customer experience. And I wanted to change that. I wanted to up my game. And to, to this day, it's still a lousy, rotten client experience to build somebody like the by the hour for all the reasons you said about transferring risk and all of that. But think about it. We talk about the war for talent, the competition for talent. If I have to go into a firm and account for every six minutes of my day, it's also a lousy, rotten employee experience. Because, you know, these are these are highly educated people. They went to five years of college to get a CPA and you're going to make them track six minutes of, of their working life as if you don't trust them to do the right thing. They got through college. They passed an exam without ever filling out a timesheet. And now you're going to make them fill out a timesheet. I, I just think, it, the, it, you know, this thing is 100 years old. Let's let's bury it. And and have a wake and be done. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, I'll be you all the way. It's um, uh, yeah. I've done a, a few funny sketches about the fact that you can go through college and there is there is no professor that stands over you between the hours of nine to five to say you sit in the library between the hours of nine to five because that's the only way that you're going to pass your exams. You're left to control your own time, to make sure you put in some time for study in amongst your uh, um, other social activities. And you know if you do the work, you'll get the results. 
Equally, you know that if you spend all day partying and don't attend your lectures and don't do your assignments, that you won't pass. So, you know, if, if you're allowed, if you're able to do that, to manage the demands of your uh, of your work with the control that over the time that you have and pass college, then why do we suddenly revert back to a kindergarten model when we put people into the workplace? It's just absolutely bizarre. So on that same topic, then I've got a question coming in to say, well, fair enough. We don't get them to keep timesheets, then. What alternative is there? This is a question I'm reading out from Fozia. Uh, is there for keeping in check Slack employees or work scope? Project management. Proper project management forecasts capacity going forward. It also, by the way, forecasts hours, but into the future. I have no problem forecasting time into the future. What I have the problem with is our absolute fetidization with comparing the forecasted time to the actual time. That's you know budget versus actual, right? That that's our that's our accounting mindset. It, it doesn't matter to a project manager. What matters is not not um, effort, not the amount of time that you need to put into something, but the duration. So a classic example of this is I give an employee a file and I say. I think this should take you roughly a day, whether you want to say eight hours, one full day, whatever. Okay, this should take eight hours. Now, whether that person spends four hours on it, whether they spend 10, 12, 14, or 20 hours on it, or 10 hours, uh, and by the way, most likely they're going to spend 10, at least that's what they're going to record on their timesheet. So timesheets are a pack of lies too. Anybody who thinks timesheets are true is absolutely kidding themselves. And as Richard Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is yourself uh, because we've all lied on timesheets. We ask audiences this all the time. Ed Kless calls it the nuclear question. How many of you have ever recorded on a timesheet something you thought your boss wanted to hear rather than what actually happened? Every hand goes up. We all have done it. It's just, it. so why we think these things are so accurate. But back to the eight hour example, no matter how long it takes you, whether it's four to 20 hours, what matters to the project manager is not the amount of time that eight-hour file took you. That, it's almost irrelevant. What keeps the project manager awake is duration. Why'd that file sit in the firm for three weeks when it only needed one day of work? That's the bottleneck, and that's what project managers care about. They don't care about the duration so much. They care about the bottlenecks. And the way you catch a Slack employee is they're not hitting their turnaround time. It's the same way FedEx tracks their drivers. What, when I hire FedEx to deliver a package to me, what matters to me is the customer, which is by the way, what we should be measuring, is whether that package drops on my door at 8.30 or 10.30, whatever time it's scheduled. Now, the driver is gonna have an on-time score and that's what we should be doing. So when we assign something to somebody, Sure, we can project hours. We can say, well, yeah, we think this will take you roughly a day. But what's more important is to give them a deadline. And as somebody who's written seven books, I can tell you that if the publisher didn't give me a deadline for the manuscript, which, by the way, I never met one of them, but it would have been a lot worse if I didn't have that deadline. So what you track is project management and turnaround time. And that's how you can find out if somebody's slipping. Now, look, there's still this still puts the onus on the firm because if I say to you, I think this should take you a day and you spend 20 hours on it, well, there could be a million reasons for that. It could be because I've given you something you've never done before. So you've got this really steep learning curve. It could be some I've given you something that you don't have any education or training for, which is my fault for not properly preparing you to do the work I ask you to do. Uh, it could be because uh, you have an alcohol problem. It could be because you're having trouble at home. It could be it could be a million reasons. And you know what? The timesheet provides no context for any of them. I just look at a number and say, wow, you went three times over budget. You're an idiot. And it, it totally devaluate, it, it devaluing the knowledge worker, totally you know, destroying their morale. And and what's worse, what's the the worst sin about the timesheet is it doesn't help you improve future performance. So I berate you for going three times over budget, but I don't give you a damn clue on how to improve going forward. That's a sin and it's a sin of management and leadership.
and it's a sin of the tool, we're using the wrong tool because it measures the wrong thing. Mm. No, absolutely. And this is probably a good time to come in with, with the alternative. And I know you share something that we can learn from the army on this as to the alternative of actually figuring, putting something else in place. Because, you know, accountants, they love their systems. They need to have a, a system. If it's not a timesheet, then what else is it to actually know whether the scope creep has occurred and how to address it? So um, how do you answer that one, Ron? Yeah, the scope creep. I mean, yeah, if, if you have scope creep, the problem with scope creep is you got to catch it before you do the work. Just just like if you took your car to a mechanic and he said, OK, it's you're, you need a tune up. It's going to be four hundred dollars. And then if the, the, you know, the staff mechanic goes out there, starts working on the tune up and goes, oh, look at that. The brakes are shot. They don't balance. So they fixes the brakes. Well, you show up at the shop and now you have the tune up and the brakes you're gonna be a very upset customer. This is part of the really lousy experience. What needs to happen is the staff mechanic needs to back off and go tell the service manager, hey, his brakes need replacing. And then what happens? The service manager calls the customer and tells them the problem and then lets the customer decide how they wanna handle it. Maybe the customer can fix his own brakes, who knows? But the, pro the point is you're giving the customer the option. And so when you see scope creep, and it's usually the, the the team members who see scope creep because they're at the coal face. They need to back off and go report it to uh, the partner, the manager, who's ever in charge of the pricing. And in some firms, the, the team member can have the change request conversation. But the idea that you're just going to sit out there and do what's required without ever discussing it with the customer and then try and bill them in arrears, that's going to put the entire relationship at risk which is another problem with the billable hours. So that's how you handle scope creep. You use change requests, but you got you to have that conversation before you do the work. And what we learned from the U.S. Army is this process called after-action reviews. And after-action reviews are done after every, every mission that uh, a platoon or you know, a group of soldiers carries out. It's just endemic. Every country's army uh, around the world, from what I can tell, except maybe North Korea. I don't have a clear uh, grasp on that one. Uh, but every army around the world uses the after-action review. They call it different things, but in the United States, it's called an after-action review. And there's four questions in an AAR. What, was, what were the objectives of this mission? So what were the objectives of this project? What actually happened? Because we make plans, and then, you know, as Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they're punched in the face, <laughs> right? The, the truth hurts. The, the, the enemy did something unexpected. So what actually happened, right, what the Army calls the ground truth? And then what were the positive and negative aspects that resulted from that difference between what we expected to happen and what actually happened? And then the last question is, how can we do better next time? And the Army's got these four questions. It gives specific time that you should spend on each one. They don't want these things to last more than 50 minutes. Sometimes they're even like 15 minutes, but they're just embedded into the culture. And so what this does is this gives a firm context and its employees context on how to improve. Imagine do, and I'm not saying you do an AAR after every single little job. You know, use the 2080 rule here. Do AARs on the 20% of your customers that generate 80% of your revenue. Do the after-action reviews on that. Record them, video them, log them into some type of knowledge bank. I've even seen firms just use a, a blog because you can set up tags. And then imagine hiring a new team member. And before you throw them out there on some assignment that they've never really done, like an audit or some type of tax return, you tell them, go search for after-action reviews on that type of engagement. And I posit to you that that employee, when they go out there and do that work, not only are going to be more efficient, more importantly, they're going to be more effective because they're going to learn from the institutional knowledge that's captured in those after-action reviews. So after-action reviews actually help people improve performance. Timesheets do not. In fact, I would argue strongly that timesheets degrade performance going forward because they provide no context, and they're also quite demoralizing when you go over which is why, by the way, people lie on them. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I think you have provided a template, haven't you, for the after-action review on the Solar Enterprise um, website. Do you recall yes. the episode number? I, I don't. I should have got that. Um, I, 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 
I will get I will get that to you. But yeah, if you go on to that episode and I'll get you the number and look at the show notes at the very bottom, we have a link to a PDF or it might be a Word document that you can download. And it's even got our notes. We took the Army's after action review template and we made some adjustments for knowledge workers. Ed Kless did a lot of this, so I give him a lot of credit. But it's a really, really good template. And if you start doing after action reviews, it's going to dramatically change your culture. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I echo that. Um, we've done a, a similar thing in our in our practice as well. Um, and I think you, 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 made, you made a good point about, you know, efficiency and effectiveness. We want our people to be effective. That's what's important rather than efficient. I mean, efficiency is good, but it's effective, which is more important. There's a question coming in about, um, I understand from Frederick, I understand the issue with timesheets, but if people work more hours than their contract at least to register hours per day is needed or so I just from my perspective, um, Frederick, it's uh, if you think about the, I guess, just because of the way the world of work is that we pay people an hourly rate. But actually, if you think about it, we people are coming in to work. So you're paying people, the mindset should be and when you're talking to your, your employees, the mindset should be I'm paying you for a chunk of work not a chunk of time. And this stems from the results-only work environment. People should be able to work when, where, and how they want as long as the work gets done. Who says that the amount of output that you would expect for your one employee happens within 37 and a half hours or 40 hours a week? It could happen within 20 hours a week. Your job as the manager, as the owner, is to clearly articulate what the outcome, what the expected outcome is for your particular uh, employee to manage a certain portfolio and rather than looking at the the inputs of their time, look at if if this employee is uh, brushly costing you say thirty thousand pounds, thirty thousand dollars, they need to generate a multiple return on investment. So that could be a starting point. That you manage your portfolio, which is three or four times what you're you're being paid. So you get the employees' minds thinking towards the the firm's objectives. Anything to add on that, um, Ron? No, I, you know, I can't speak to the labor laws because it varies tremendously in each country. It even varies here. Each state's one of the, by the way, uh, it's one of the roadblocks to implementing these rows. We have these strict overtime rules in some states. It's, it's counted by hours and all of that. But the bottom line is um, I don't have problems if you're paying people by the hour, you know, tracking hours for that. You know, hey, I worked eight hours today. I worked 10 hours today, whatever. I don't have a problem with that at all. I have a problem with the six-minute timesheet trying to allocate your day to every every task, every customer you touch. That's my problem. That's what I'm saying is unneeded. And since the average firm spends somewhere between 10 and 15% of their gross revenue, what we call feeding the beast, it's the biggest customer in the firm, if you think about it. You know, inputting timesheets, usually there's two or three people that, you know, are responsible for whipping people to get their timesheets in. And then we print out the reports and then people sit around and look at the reports and they groan and then they do their billing. This is all incredible bureaucracy that creates not one penny of value, not one. And yet we go through it and we never look at it as complete waste. And this is one of the reasons why I think Lean and Six Sigma are completely useless in the knowledge organization. I mean, these things have never they've never, these uh, methods have never taken on the timesheet. And yet they claim to be, you know, oh, we drive out waste, we drive out waste. No, you don't, because the timesheet's still around. <laughs> if Lean and Six Sigma drove out waste, the timesheet would have been killed about 50 years ago. And it's not. So there's something else going on here, why it's stuck around so long. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So much time is, is wasted in, in tracking time. And, and what we should really be doing is to have metrics in place which track how um, you know how 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 good we are performing in line with what our clients want from us. So what do clients want from us? Clients want things to be turned around quickly. So are you measuring that? Are you measuring your turnaround times with how fast you're doing accounts or tax returns? Clients want a good quality of service. So how are you are you measuring? Let's say your the number of Google reviews you're getting, or Facebook reviews, or number of referrals you're getting. Because if you're doing a good job, you're going to be recommended for what you're doing. People are going to be happy to leave you reviews. 
uh, how fast are you know the um, how fast are you doing accounts after the year end? Are you getting the accounts turned around within four months of the of the year end, for example? These are the things that we ought to be tracking and getting our team members focused on looking at because they are more in line with what our clients want from us, as opposed to timesheets which have no no bearing whatsoever. And uh, yeah, we're not selling time, so they have no resemblance whatsoever on on our on our output for clients. We should be measuring the way our customers define the success of their CPA. That's what we need to be measuring. And what turnaround time, when did I get my stuff, access to them? Are they are they good customer service? Do, I, do they get back to me? Do they reply to my emails or my texts or, you know, all of those things. And we can manage those expectations within certain bands. You can sign up for different plans that have different turnaround time and how fast we'll get back to you. And can you email us on the weekend? And do you have my cell phone number and all of that? But the bottom line is, we're a relationship business. And this is the other thing that drives me absolutely crazy about the timesheet. I think we pay lip service to being a relationship business because in a relationship, you don't, relationships, only two things are going on. They're either strengthening or they're dying. That's it. That's it. That's the only two things that can happen to a relationship over a span of time. And you can't strengthen, let alone build relationships by looking at clocks. If you're in a relationship, that means you invest the time. If, if somebody's going through a difficult time and you have to provide more handholding and just a, a, a friendly ear to listen to, I think we're financial psychiatrists. You know, we should put couches in our offices and, and sometimes we have to, you know, help our customers through really strenuous times. And, and I've seen that a lot with the COVID pandemic, as I'm sure you have. And, you know, you, the, 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 the billable hour mindset is, well, geez, we have to make a profit on that. Give me a break. <laughs> You know, you're here to serve these people. You're privileged to serve them. It's a relationship. And just like nobody defines their success of their relationship or their marriage by saying it's we have an efficient marriage. You can't you can be efficient with things. I have no problem with efficiency when it comes to software and apps and all of this kind of stuff. But when it comes to humans, you have to be effective. And that means sometimes being inefficient. So I actually think the difference between efficiency and effectiveness is quite big. Efficiency, they're, they're mutually exclusive in my mind, because think about it this way. We can be completely efficient at doing absolutely the wrong thing. And there is nothing more wasteful or useless than being efficient at doing the wrong thing. However, if you're effective, meaning you're doing the right thing, you're usually more efficient in the process. Absolutely. And in a day and age where technology is all around us, the requirement for us to innovate, to keep growing is more important than ever. Innovation in itself is inefficient. So, in order yeah. to inefficiency, you know, efficiency and innovation. What's innovation? Innovation is kind of you know trying something. It doesn't work. Okay, we'll try something else. So, by its nature, innovation is in, is inefficient. So, I think you're you're bang on when you said our goal is to be effective at all levels, and that helps the relationship. And a lot of accounts. This is uh, per, that's precisely, by the way, why Google gives their people twenty uh, percent time to work on whatever mm -hmm. floats their boat, whatever excites them. Uh, we try and tell CPA firms they should do the same thing: give your people one day a week to, I don't know, write a book or you know learn how to public speak or learn the piano. <laughs> And for, well, gee, that would be eight hours times 50. And they start doing the math and he's, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but see, if you don't do that, you'll never get any new products like Google Mail and Google Earth and all the things that have come out of that 20% time. You, it's one of the reasons why I believe our, our profession lacks innovation and creativity is because of the, the way we measure time. It's soul sucking. You can't be creative if you're staring at a full calendar and an eight hour quota every day of billable hours. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you mentioned something uh, earlier and just to kind of put uh, about yeah, the profit. Yeah, we, we seem to be obsessed about trying to make a profit on a job or on every transaction. And I think most people lose sight of the fact that it's not about making a profit in each and every transaction. We forget that we are fortunate to be in a profession where clients can stay with us for years on end. What is the lifetime value of a client? And if we truly appreciate the, the lifetime value of a client to this and what that could mean, not just in terms of, you know, the, the, the revenue over that time, but also the ability to get recommendations from those clients, how much extra is that worth? So the, you know, if, if a client has a particular problem at some point in time, 
hear them out. Don't charge them extra for them to pick up the phone to call you or to email you. It will average itself out over time. You need to be available for your clients, for them to pick up the phone to you. If you think, if you believe that you are the trusted advisor that you say you are, but then you're putting them off from picking up the phone to you because they're going to get an invoice, then you're not really a trusted advisor. You want to be the first person they pick up the phone to without issue, without fear of getting a bill, just because you are the person that can help them solve their problems. And that's what we're here for. We're here to solve problems. Your clients aren't going to be calling you every single day. They'll call you in the time of need. Clients are busy. They've got their own businesses to run. So I think there's a big fear that, oh, if we open up the the gates to, to allow clients to call us and email us whenever we want, we're going to be inundated, but it, it's quite the opposite. You know, <laughs> it is. And, 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 you know, that's a, such a great point that we're so myopically, uh, you know, fixated on the math of the moment, right. Uh, that we forget there's a lifetime value here that we really should be focused on and that you can't measure that by time. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely insane. And the other thing I would say is, um, you, you know, Yes, I realize that our profession solves problems, and, and that's a big part of what we do, but I don't think it's the only thing that we do. I'm actually more, much more intrigued when I can help somebody pursue their opportunities or pursue their goals or their dreams, and, and we play a big part in that as well. We help customers retire sooner. We help them grow their businesses. We help them um, you know, leave their legacy right through estate planning if your firm does that. All of these things are bigger than just solving problems. They're pursuing uh, opportunities or dreams. And that's where we can add incredible value. Uh, and this is why I think, Riza, that the, um, you know, the, the next iteration in value pricing, what we lovingly refer to as VP2O, is, is the subscription economy. Because in a subscription model, there is no place for timesheets. None. Zero. Because all the metrics, all the KPIs are completely different in a subscription-based business. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, this is one of your quotes, isn't it? Where prices do not come from costs, they justify the future expenditure of cost. It's one I think I've memorized from. from right, costs don't, de yeah, costs don't determine price. Actually, it's price that justifies cost. Because if you think about it, if that wasn't true, and here's a deep thought that folks can contemplate, but you're all CPAs or accountants, so you're smart people, you can figure this out. If costs determine price, no business should ever go bankrupt because it doesn't take a rocket surgeon to put a cost above a price, right? Or a price above a cost. But businesses go bankrupt all the time or they don't make profit. Why? Because they don't produce things of value. So it's value that determines price and it's price that justifies costs that you can uh, invest in and still make uh, a profit and service the customer. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that is um, that is something uh, quite deep, which, you know, it, it, it's, it, which requires reflection, but it, it is exactly the way that, um, that things are going. So, so talk to us about kind of how you see the subscription economy um, uh, taking place within the, the accounting profession then. I know I've heard you talk about the, because I'm, I'm all about, you know, I'm, 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 I'm there with kind of the, the pricing, the customer pricing, the relationship, and we adopt a profiling so not dissimilar to say the insurance model where you kind of you figure out okay well what that's how we measure the scope so this particular client there they are at this stage of the business they are at this size they have this many employees and therefore they have a, a fixed price um, which includes everything which is within this this agreed scope but i think what you're talking about now is to get to one single price which will cry across the portfolio so talk to us a little bit about the uh, the pricing the portfolio and, and the future as you see it Right. Well, you know, hourly billing price, the inputs, and then the we, we kind of did this hybrid for a period of years, um, which was we priced a scope of work for. So we drew an outline of the outputs that we were going to provide to the customer and we put a fixed price around it. Usually that was done by tallying up the estimated hours, maybe putting a little bit of a premium on it. Value pricing came along and, and I strongly advocated for pricing the customer because value is completely subjective. It varies customer by customer. There's no marginal cost for us because we're meeting with the customer one-on-one -on -one anyway to customize uh, a particular price for each customer. Now that could still be with three options. But then the subscription business model is completely different because you're not pricing the customer anymore. You're pricing the relationship. And people say, well, well, you're playing semantical games. What's the difference between pricing the customer and pricing the relationship? 
there's a big difference. So my favorite example of this is right now in about 10, I think 11 American cities, I can subscribe to a Porsche. So it's a program called Porsche Drive. And there's three levels. I can subscribe to a single model or I can go for a multi-model platform. It's about $3,500 a month. It covers everything, insurance, taxes, everything, maintenance. The only thing I pay for is tolls and, and gas. And that $3,500 a month enables me to switch out different models. So I can call Porsche and say, you know, I've got friends coming this weekend. I need an SUV to go wine tasting. So they come out, they white glove uh, out an SUV and they white glove away my convertible. And then after I'm done with the weekend, I can get the convertible back. Um, and, they'll, and they'll do that unlimited. I can switch out unlimited. I could call them every day and get a new Porsche to drive every day. And people say, well, how's that different from buying a Porsche or buying or leasing? Because it's not tied to an automobile. You have a direct relationship with Porsche. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the manufacturer, not the dealer, Porsche, the company. It's a direct relationship. Now Porsche, the company has all that data about where I drive, where I go, what I like, what I don't, all of these things. That's what makes subscription different. It's a direct relationship with the customer. There's no intermediary. And that's phenomenally uh, valuable because Porsche has been doing this now for about two years. 80% of the people that have signed up for this program are new to the brand. Because Porsche has a problem, just like Harley-Davidson and BMW, some of these other luxury cars, their customers are dying. You know, let's face it, they need a younger demographic and they're getting it through this. And my question to people is, once I subscribe to that Porsche and I stay for six months, maybe a year, what am I going to be driving the rest of my life? Absolutely. How, and how much is that worth to Porsche? Like you were saying about lifetime value, the subscription business model is different than value pricing because it monetizes that lifetime value. You probably saw the report of Jeff Bezos investing $300 million into an accounting firm called Pilot. Mm -hmm. Did you see that report? Yeah. Yep. That accounting firm has a $1.2 billion valuation. Wow. It, uh, on a one times multiple, that makes it the eighth largest firm in the United States. <laughs> There's no way you're going to get that level of multiple with a value pricing firm, certainly not with an hourly billing firm where you might get one times revenue when you sell it. A value pricing firm I've seen as high as three, maybe three and a half times. Subscription could get you seven, eight, ten times. And I think uh, Pilot is even higher than that. Mm, absolutely. No, I, I don't know. Because they have that annual recurring revenue. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, um, it, it's the way the world is going. I mean, if anyone listening will, will um, uh, if you only just looked at your bank account to see how many subscriptions are going out for things these days, they quickly, I don't know, this is the way the world is going. We don't, we no longer need to own something physically. We're quite happy just to, to subscribe to it. And I know when I, when you first mentioned about Porsche on one of your podcasts, I went straight to the website to see whether it was available in the UK, but it isn't at the moment because it's exactly the kind of thing that um, would be really attractive. I've always leased my cars because I just don't like the, uh, the headache of having to own something and to maintain it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the Porsche model would be would be would be fantastic. Um, all that uh, all that hassle of of maintenance and all the rest of it. And for Porsche, like you say, it's you've got a customer for life. If if you have everything that you need um, given to you and served up when you wanted it, then why would you want to move away from Porsche to something else? So, absolutely, the way things are going. This is this has been fantastic. If you've got any questions, any comments, please do put them in the comments below, and I'd be happy to. Um, to uh, uh, put them to Ron in the in the few minutes that we've got to left. There's a question coming in from I believe that's Ben. What would you suggest to track these KPIs, like in the job system notion, and would the team member record this themselves or something management would do? Uh, this is probably more of a specific question. Uh, from our perspective, Ben, we use, um, yeah, I mean, you could use your practice management uh, system to do that. You could create your own flip chart to do that. Uh, the idea really is to kind of pick the, you know, three or four key metrics which are important and then have them updated on a, on a regular basis to get your team members' minds focused on what is truly important. It's not the clocking of hours. Um, it's actually the outputs which 
have direct relevance and give value to your clients. Question coming in from uh, Jason, which you might want to take on. So how would you incorporate bookkeeping volume into a subscription-based firm? Different volume, menu options, or something else? No, because I don't look at effort. It, volume is not is not the the driver. It could be a proxy. Uh, you might I might do it on an, annual expenses. Pilot actually charges based on how much your monthly expenses are, which is kind of an interesting proxy for volume. But I, I think you could do it based upon, and this is going to vary tremendously. So it's hard to give generic advice. It's going to vary by firm, but. Uh, I would do it based upon what you're covering and what you're not covering. So you might have just a bookkeeping option. You might have bookkeeping plus tax. You might have bookkeeping tax and advisory. Again, it depends on what your firm offers. But stop trying to tie effort to your price. That That's the whole problem with the billable hour. That's what we're trying to move away from. And the other thing that you need to consider in a subscription model, and this is huge, is peace of mind and convenience and frictionless. Um, because, hey, whatever happens to that customer, you're covered. If you hire 10 more employees and our payroll goes up or you have more bank accounts or you're growing, you know, things are happening, fine, you're covered because our prices are three or four times higher than our price, even under value pricing, and therefore we have the capacity to cover you. So you have fewer customers in a subscription-based model, much higher prices, multiples of three to five, your average price now, but you always have capacity to help your customers. And that's really key because think about it. If you have a dentist and you have a toothache, the last thing you want to hear is, well, yeah, we can fit you in, Ron, come down in three weeks. No, you want your dentist to always have slack in the system. And we don't. A lot of firms don't have any slack. They run at 100% realization or capacity. And that's just crazy. Not only will that burn out your knowledge workers, but you won't have any slack in the system capacity to handle those you know, last minute, uh, high value items that you can deliver to your customer and give them that peace of mind. I don't think we pay enough attention. We underinvest in and we underprice peace of mind, convenience and frictionless. And there's still amount of bureaucracy with value pricing. And you have to have an annual value conversation. You have to read, you know, rediscuss what's going on. And if a subscription model just says, no, hey, if we're capable of doing it, you're covered. And if we can't do it, we'll find somebody in our network who can and we'll quarterback that relationship. It's a peace of mind, convenience and insurance model it has nothing to do with, you know, it's not tied to a transaction. It's tied to the relationship. And that's why relationship and customer are completely different ideas under this model. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I. I totally agree on the on the point about having capacity for your best clients, just like you know, the hotels would have capacity for their best clients. They always have the, the VIP suites, the presidential suites. They are always available. And they are priced accordingly because someone is there out there prepared to pay for the value that they get to have their own butler on hand 24-7 to be able to have the size of the suite. So, yeah, most accounting firms are, are full to the brim. They uh, can't handle the capacity, but this is why you need to create the capacity. And the capacity comes through pricing better, pricing the value, so that you always leave capacity for those ideal clients that um, that 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 are, that are out there who come knocking on your door. The last thing you want is to have to turn an ideal client away because you can't actually service them the way you want to. We we have it backwards. We tend to put revenue before capacity. The only way that uh, we'll hire somebody new is if we're busting up the seams. And that's wrong. You should have you should always have slack capacity. I think firms should run at no greater than 60 or 70% capacity, especially in the subscription model. And I see a question here from Frederick about uh, bookkeeping services. If the rate is fixed, it's monthly, that's subscription. No, that's wrong, Frederick. Uh, this is a big misconception that I take a fixed price, divide it by 12, and I'm on the subscription business model. This is not a, subscription is not a pricing method. It's a business model change and a business model change. The pricing changes and what you measure changes. Subscription has a completely different looking income statement. Its income statement looks different. It, it rolls annual uh, um, annual recurring revenue forward. It's forward directed, not backwards looking. All the KPIs in the subscription company are different. Um, and it's not just about taking a fixed price and dividing it by 12. You've got to factor in insurance and the portfolio. That's why we say the subscription model 
prices the relationship and the portfolio. And that's where I'm getting this three to five times multiple on your average price now, because you're, you're offering that, hey, no matter what happens, you're audited, whatever, you're covered. You're covered. So that's why it's different and more valuable to the customer, I think. Just like Porsche, I can, I can get any car I want, and I have none of the albatross of ownership. They've removed it. They've made it frictionless. That's incredibly valuable. Absolutely. Ron, I think we're, um, we're coming to the end now. So let's, uh, let's uh, kind of wrap up. If there any final questions, feel free to put them in. If we can't take them now, then hopefully we'll be able to answer them afterwards on, on LinkedIn or wherever you put them. So Ron, just to uh, summarize then, so going back to kind of the title of this session, timesheets are the wrong measuring tool and how to replace them. So if you can give us a nice uh, a summary in 60 seconds of that uh, for the audience, that would be fab. Yeah, uh, you know, I think a big thing with this is, look, McKinsey and Bain and Company no longer do timesheets. <laughs> now, if they can do it, CPA profession can do it because we're smart people too. And I really think one of the things holding us back, besides this cost accounting mindset that we talked about, is I think there's kind of a lack of trust when we hire somebody. And I've never understood this because these are really smart people that you're hiring. They want to do a good job and they know when they're doing a good job. They know when they're servicing their customer, getting those accolades, getting that feedback, getting those Google reviews, getting high NPS scores, whatever it is that you look at. Uh, and by, you know, I think the only place time spent should matter is in prison. You know, judge people based upon their results. You can have a million dollar ID in the shower. What do I put on your timesheet? <laughs> it, 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 again, we're plunging a ruler into the oven to determine the temperature. We're, we're measuring the wrong thing. Focus on the results. That's what matters. And hold people accountable. I'm not saying it's chaos without timesheets. There's, you know, replace them with after action reviews and you'll actually improve future performance and have happier customers and happier team members. And that's got to lead to a more profitable practice. Here, here. Absolutely. Thank you, Ron. That's been amazing. I hope uh, if you're watching, you've got some value from this. If you're watching this on replay and you have a question, feel free to put it in, uh, tag Ron in. If he's available, he will he will come back to you and I'm happy to um, to answer as well. I would echo everything Ron has said. We certainly we ditched the timesheet a few years ago. We went to a results-only work environment and we haven't looked back since. Um, as accountants, we are not selling time. We are selling results, outcomes, and solutions. Get your objectives aligned with your client's objectives and make that relationship win-win. Thank you for attending today. Thank you for watching. I hope you've got some value. Ron, thank you so much for giving up your time to come along today. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully we will uh, catch up soon. Thank you once again, everyone. And take care. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Reza. Thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. For more free content, videos, and resources, visit www.rezahuda.com. And if you haven't already, come and join the community in our Transform Your Profits Facebook group, where we support each other to build more successful, profitable, and impactful accounting firms.